Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures, let me invite you once again to turn to the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Christian scriptures. And we are at present uh, in a series of expositions, looking at the opening 11 chapters eventually. Uh, But we're in Genesis chapter 2, and today our focus will be on verses 1 through 3. And so let me invite you as you're able Let's stand in honor of the reading and the hearing of God's Word. Again, I'm reading from Genesis 2, beginning in verse 1, wherein uh, Moses faithfully records. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. May God bless today the reading and the hearing of his word. And let us join together in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we do stand today humbly before the open pages of thy Bible. And we do seek today, O God, the illumination of thy Holy Spirit. We ask that you would give light to our spiritual eyes, that you would unstop our ears, that you would loosen our hearts and minds so that we might be able to receive thy truth, not merely as the words of man, but as what it is in truth, the word of God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. I remember one Sunday when I was about in the sixth grade. My dad was a Southern Baptist pastor in a small church in South Carolina. And we had been to morning worship, and we had come home to our house for what was usually the biggest meal of the week in our household, Sunday lunch. We usually had roast beef, boiled potatoes, boiled carrots. It was excellent. After lunch that particular Sunday, as I recall, I didn't have anything else to do before we went back for the evening service, or so I thought. And I cast about looking for something to do. And then I remembered that the day before on Saturday, I had started to cut the grass at our house, which was one of my chores. But I had only gotten the front yard done. So I went out into the backyard, got out our push mower, cranked it, and began cutting the grass in the backyard. I had only made about one swipe through the yard when the glass door on the back of our house slid open and my older brother, Randy, came out the back door. He walked up to the mower, pulled the kill switch, While I was standing there looking at him dumbfounded, 
And he said two words. It's Sunday. He turned around and went back inside. Indeed, I had forgotten that it was Sunday. And in our family, we didn't cut our grass on Sundays or do any other kind of work that we knew it was perfectly okay to do on any other day of the week. Why? Because Sunday was a day of rest, a day to give our time to God. And we weren't even reformed in our theology. We were good old three, probably three point Calvinistic, more Arminian type Southern Baptists. But this was just the way most Christians, most people that we knew lived in those days. Where did Christians get the idea that there would be a day, a special day, one in seven that would be given over to being a day of rest? Someone might say, well, it's there in the Ten Commandments. It's provided there to God's people through Moses at Mount Sinai, as it's recorded in Exodus 20, when God gave to Moses those Ten Commandments, not Ten Suggestions, but Ten Commandments, Ten Principles that are the key to human flourishing, as some people like to use the term today. The fourth of those ten principles or ten commandments as recorded in Exodus 20 verse 8 is remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. But in truth, as we shall see today, as we continue this exposition of the opening chapters of Genesis, that principle of one day in seven being given to rest was not established on Mount Sinai. It was established on the seventh day after God had created the world in the space of six days and all very good. This is why we call the Sabbath a creation ordinance. It's not a Sinai ordinance. It's a creation ordinance. It was established in the beginning by God himself. And it was part of the original good design for his creation. Just as we saw last week in verse 27, the making of mankind in two varieties, male and female. That was part of the good original design. And it was the good original design of God for there to be one day in seven that was set apart for rest. And it's... It's important to remember that this is reported to us, recorded for us in Genesis 2 before the fall. Before sin enters the picture. It's it's God's ideal design for humanity. Indeed, for all creation. So as we turn to our passage today, it's a short passage, just three verses. But I would like to draw, if I can, from this, at least seven Main observations or point. There would have to be seven that would come out of this, right? A Sabbath's worth of points I would like to draw from our passage today, if I can. Seven observations or points 
that are established directly in this text. The last one is one that I think is further revealed or flows from this text. So let's look, if we can, at, the, at our text and see if we can draw out these seven points. We're going to begin with the first point, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. And the first point is, we are meant to wonder at the vast magnitude of the world which God created in the space of six days and all very good. The opening verse of chapter 2, verse 1 It reads like this. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. The language in Genesis 2.1 echoes the language of Genesis 1.1. The way the, the, the Bible begins and the creation account begins. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And now in chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. In Hebrew, the exact same words for heaven and earth are used, although in the authorized version translation, as I read it to you, if you look at 1-1, it's heaven, singular. And if you look at 2-1, it is heavens, plural, in the authorized version or the Tyndale uh, 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 tradition in English translations. But underneath that is exa- actually the exact same Hebrew word. And sometimes the translators, just for the sake of variety, will, will translate it as heaven, sometimes as heavens. And we see that in comparing 1 1 and 2 1. You might remember with that when I preached on Genesis 1 1, I noted that that phrase there. Heaven and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. I noted that that was a a literary convention. It's called a merism, where there are two contrasting parts of a whole that are put forward. When it says in uh, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And when it says here in chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. When it uses the terms heavens and earth, it's, it's, it's saying from the top to the bottom, from one end to another, it's emphasizing that God, here in chapter 2, verse 1, had finished making everything, all that was there, from one end to another, from heaven to earth, all of what the Greeks would call the cosmos, or what we call the universe. And Moses then adds there at the end of verse 1, and all the host of them. And that's simply another way of saying, and, and everything in between. God had finished making everything from heaven to earth, and all the host of them, and everything in between. That last phrase there, and all the hosts of them, is meant to emphasize the totality of, and the completion and the magnitude of the divine work of creation. One commentator noted that the word hosts here normally only refers to what he calls the luminaries or the heavenly bodies, like the sun, the moon, and the stars. And he said you can find this Hebrew word that's translated as hosts 
Here referring to the luminaries or the heavenly bodies in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 19 and Deuteronomy 17 verse 3. But he says here, it's used as, as a figure of speech. And here's another, sorry to have all these literary terms, merisms. And here's another one. He said it is a zoigma. Zoigma is the Greek word for yoke. And he says, strictly speaking, when it says uh, that the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them, the host of them is referring to the fact that God completed making all the luminaries, the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon and the stars. But he said it's a zoigma because it's yoked also to an emphasis on God having completed the contents of all that was in the earth. And simply, as I said before, everything in between. It's just a Hebrew way of saying God made everything. And again, I think what's stressed here in this opening verse of our passage is simply the immensity of the creation. And when we think about it, creation is truly breathtaking. Every Christian really is a naturalist. We should love the natural world when we see the order of things, when we notice the way plants grow. And we notice the, the beauty of the skies. And we, we notice the complexity of uh, animal life upon the earth and so forth. Every Christian is a naturalist who sees the beauty of this world that God has made. But we also acknowledge that we as puny human beings will never be able to grasp with our finite minds the enormous scope of creation. I was reading last week a book by a Christian apologist in the United Kingdom whose name is Paul Gardner. He's also a credential scientist and a member of the Geological Society there. I was looking in particular at a chapter he wrote on day four of creation. The day that God made the sun, moon and stars, the hosts. And I even took the book to the supper table one evening this week and held my family captive uh, as I read to them a few passages from the book. And I told them, oh, I'm so sorry I didn't read this before I preached the sermon on day four creation. But in preparing this message, I was like, ah, oh, there's a reference to the fact that he made the hosts. And so, ooh, it's an opportunity for me to share with you some of what Paul Gardner wrote about the hosts or the luminaries that illustrates the immensity of the world in which we live that we might not be as aware of as we're sitting here in Louisa, Virginia, one tiny spot on our earth. Gardner wrote this about the sun. He said, our sun is one of about a hundred billion stars that make up our galaxy, the Milky Way. Just in our galaxy, there are a hundred billion, billion stars. And then he said, our galaxy is one of about 30 galaxies that are in a cluster that is called, by those who study these things, the local group. And he, he notes that local doesn't mean what it means. It's not the ordinary use of it. But there are 30 galaxies 
So I guess that would be 3,000 billion stars just in those 30 galaxies. And then he says this. He says, one recent estimate suggests that in total, there are 10 times more stars in the observable universe than all the grains of sand on the world's deserts and beaches. Does your mind be boggled? Go down to Virginia Beach. Walk along the ocean. See the, every grain of sand. Think about the grains of sand that are in the Sahara. And think that there are ten times more stars in the observable world than there are grains of sand in our deserts and on our beaches. The world is immense that God has made. And think about this, he he adds, also, stars are like snowflakes. No two stars are absolutely identical. Of the billions of stars, there aren't two that are exactly the same. God finished his work of making the heavens and earth and all the hosts of them. And it is immense. We, we can resonate as, we, as our minds are staggered in thinking about the vastness, the magnitude of this world that God has made in the space of six days and all very good. We can resonate with David. We were quoting, we even sang Psalm 8 last Lord's Day. When David says in Psalm 8, verse 3, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? So first of all, we are meant through this passage uh, to be in wonder at the magnitude of the creation. Second point. This is a short one. This takes us to the opening of verse 2, where it says, And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made. And the second point is simply for a point of clarification. We need to be sure that we correct any misconception that might arise from the wording here. Someone might read this perhaps and think, mistakenly think that the work of creation continued into the seventh day and only ended on that day. But as one commentator rightly points out, the term that is rendered here is on, and on the seventh day God ended his work, that that term, that little word there, should probably best be understood as conveying the temporal sense of by. So by the time it was the seventh day, God had completed, God had finished all of his work. Third of seven points, a Sabbath of points, on this short passage. On the seventh day, God rested. Look at the second half of verse 2. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. Now there are several things about this statement that require proper understanding if we are to do what Paul uh, told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15 when he said we are to rightly divide or rightly interpret, rightly understand the word. 
Most importantly, we must understand that when it says that God rested, it is not saying that God was tired or God was exhausted by the work of creation. We must first acknowledge negatively that God is not like a man. God does not have a physical body that might grow tired. As Christ himself taught when he spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, 24, God is a spirit. And so God does not have a body and God does not become tired. The prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. When he wrote, hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. The God who created the world does not faint, he is not weary. So when it says he rested, it's not talking about him being tired. We must also acknowledge positively that God is omnipotent, all-powerful. And his power is exhaustive. Man's power is finite. Man's strength is finite. God's power and God's strength is unbounded. It is infinite. So Psalm 115 verse 3 declares, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Christ also taught his disciples in Matthew 19, 26, with God, all things are possible. So the verb to rest, rendered as to rest here, does not mean rest in the ordinary sense in which we finite men might comprehend this term. The clue to its proper meaning and interpretation is found in the the Hebrew word that underlies it. The Hebrew verb here is Shabbat. It's the word that is the source of our word Sabbath. It literally means to cease, to desist, to end. And it's paralleled with the reference in verse 2 to the fact that uh, God ended his work. And so um, it might well be rendered and he Sabbathed on the seventh day. And the words, the seventh day also comes from a term meaning Sabbath. And he Sabbathed on the Sabbath day from all his work, which he had made. One commentator noted, thus it is here at creation that we see the general principle for Sabbath keeping established. It is a creation ordinance. What did God do on that seventh day? What did God do on that first Sabbath? When it says he rested, that's an interesting question. Perhaps we can suggest an answer by considering what God has done on every Sabbath after the first Sabbath. What happens on Sunday? What happens on the Christian Sabbath? We who are believers come together and we have a service of worship in which we attempt to serve God. That's why it's called a service. 
a worship service, not a worship experience. It's not about our experience. That's, that's not our experience that's key. It is service. It's not about whether we get a spiritual high from things, although God is often pleased to bless us deeply. But it is about our service to Him, our acknowledgement of Him, our giving to Him that which He has commanded and that which He deserves, and that is our worship, our service. And so we come before our God and we praise Him, we give Him thanks, we give Him the glory that is due unto His name. Think of all the great psalms that call upon us to worship. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. Or Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Or consider Paul's exhortation in Hebrews 13, 15. By him, by Christ, that is. Therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips. Giving thanks to his name. We're trying to figure out what did God do when he rested? Well, we'll we'll compare it to what happens on all the other Sabbaths that we're perhaps more familiar with. And what happens on those Sabbaths is that we come together and it is our place in worship on the Sabbath to praise and adore and extol our God. And what is God's place on these days? What is his rest? His place or standing is to receive our worship. To receive our praise. To receive our thanks. To receive our adoration. Does he need it? No. He's satisfied in and of himself. So we can imagine. What does it mean for him to rest? It's not different than what happens on every subsequent day of rest. God was worshipped on the seventh day in spirit and in truth. There weren't many human beings as yet who had been made to worship him. Even those who had been made had only been around for one day. But all the created order, all the billions of stars, all the hosts and everything that he had made, was praising him, worshiping him. He was resting in that and rightly receiving their praise. That is what it means in places like Psalm 19, verse 1, when it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And think about this. David could write Psalm 19 post-Genesis 3. And David could say in his day, despite the fall, the heavens and the firmament still praise God, praise their creator. If 
The fallen creation cries out in worship to God. Can you imagine what the worship of God would have been like on that first day of rest? When creation was not yet tainted by sin, by our sin. And it was with purity, praising and worshiping its creator. There hasn't been a day of worship like that since, and there won't be another one until the end of all things. Fourth of seven observations. Fourth of seven observations. And we see this in the beginning of verse 3. As it says, And God blessed the Sabbath day and sanctified it. You will notice in that statement that, first of all, that God blessed the seventh day or the Sabbath day. That's our fourth point. God blessed the seventh or the Sabbath day. Notice, first of all, God blessed this day. This is the third beatitude or blessing that is mentioned in Holy Scripture. The first blessing, you might remember, was upon the sea creatures and upon the fowl. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 22, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. We talked about this previously. God blessed those creatures that he had made for the sea and for to fill the firmament, the fowl. The second of the first three blessings that appear on the pages of Scripture is found in chapter 1 and verse 29. Sorry, verse 28. And this is a beatitude or a blessing that is given upon mankind. And God bless them, that is, the, 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 the men, the man, and, the, and we'll see later in Genesis 2, the woman who had been made uh, in his image. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and re- replenish the earth and subdue it. And so there is a blessing, a special beatitude that is given to mankind. And now we're seeing here in uh, chapter 2 and verse 3 of Genesis that there's a third beatitude. God blessed the seventh day. God blessed the seventh day. One commentator noted that a threefold repetition in Hebrew is often meant to be emphatic. We can think, for example, about the report of the call of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6. And the seraphim that are before the throne of God, they cry out. And what do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the third blessing now that's been communicated in the opening two chapters of Genesis. Here's another interesting thing. If you look at verses 2 and 3 of Genesis 2, you'll see that the term the seventh day appears three times. The word seventh day is mentioned three times. And then this is the third beatitude. The commentator who called attention to this concludes, it is rhetorical 
and it symbolizes perfection. God blessed this seventh day. He blessed it. He, he, he gave his stamp of approval to it. He affirmed it. He promoted it. He commended it. And so we have the, the mention of him blessing this day. Fifth of our seven points. This is also in the beginning of verse three. If I can reread the opening portion of verse three. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. And so our fifth point is we see that God also sanctified the seventh day. The verb here in Hebrew is kadash. And it's the root for a word that will appear often in the Old Testament. Kadosh meaning holy. The verb to be holy. This is the first time this term related to holiness is mentioned in the scriptures. To sanctify or to make holy something means to set it apart. To make it unique or distinct. As one commentator notes, the seventh day, in other words, is to be different from the other six days of the week. It is special. He blessed it and he sanctified it. This commentator adds, Man is, of course, later required to imitate God in Sabbath keeping. He is to regard the seventh day as unique and to perform only certain duties on that day. So the seventh day, the day of rest, the Sabbath is established as a creation ordinance. Genesis 2, but after the fall, Genesis 3, knowing our struggles with sin. God is pleased and kind to reiterate what are his expectations for his people on this day. And we see this spelled out, as we've already noted, in the Ten Commandments. So if you look over at Exodus chapter 20, and starting in verse 8, you have God uh, speaking again about, we could say, the sanctification of this day. So Genesis, or Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 talks about God sanctifying the day. And then when you get to Exodus 20, verse 8, what does it say? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then God continued. If you're looking at Exodus 20, verse 9, six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. And then notice especially Exodus 20, verse 11, that grounds the keeping the Sabbath day holy in the creation ordinance. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them, and rested the seventh day. And then look at that last line of Exodus 20, verse 11. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Where have you heard that before? Genesis 2, verse 3. He blessed this day and he sanctified it. Sixth 
point as we work through the passage. The blessing and sanctification of the seventh day or the Sabbath day, the day of rest, was founded upon God's resting from his work of creation. We might say God was the first Sabbath keeper. It's founded upon his resting from his work of creation. And so we look at the second half of verse three, as it says, because explaining now the cause for God blessing and sanctifying this day, because that in it he had rested or Sabbathed from all his work, which God created and made. This might make another observation here just about the beauty, the complexity of this writing uh, on a literary level. It's a masterpiece because it's not just something written by men. Uh, it's God breathed. It's God's own word. And there's there's so many intricacies about the way it's put together here in front of us. If you look just at the, the last two words that are used there in verse three, when it said, it's, he, he rested from his work, which God created and made. And that verb to create, you might remember from the opening message in this series, that Hebrew word bara is a special word. God is only the subject of this. It's not something men do. Only God does this. And this verb appeared three times previous to this. In chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 21, chapter 1, verse 27. And now here in 2, 3 is the, is the final appearance of it, or the, this climactic appearance of it. He rested from all the work which he had created. And then also the verb made is, appears frequently. It also appears three times. Chapter 1, verse 16, chapter 1, verse 25, chapter 1, verse 26. And now there's this final usage of this term. And if you take the the use of the word created in chapter 1, verse 1, you have the beginning of the description of the six-day creation. Then on the seventh day, you have sort of the exclamation mark on it. This is the world God created. It didn't come about on its own. It didn't come about from pre-existing materials. It's, It's the world that God made ex nihilo, out of nothing. He is our creator. He is our maker. And among the billions of stars, he has a special care and concern for man made in his image. And he has created and established a creation ordinance that one day in seven be set apart as a Sabbath of rest in him and worship of him. Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, You know, of course, we're going to get to it eventually, that Genesis 3, sin, enters the picture. And there is disobedience. There is rebellion against the commands of God. And we rightly call this the fall. The fall from man's state of innocence. And this begins uh, the, the struggle with sin. And so as we read through the rest of the Bible after Genesis 3, we see that one of the things that For example, the Old Testament, the Israelites of old struggled with was with was obedience to keeping the day of rest. Setting it apart, 
We saw this anticipated, I think, in the Ten Commandments themselves because God was declaring, explicitly declaring that the Sabbath was to be kept, that, that it was to be holy, that ordinary work was to be avoided as a way of setting apart this day. Further instructions make clear as the Old Testament unfolds that the weekly Sabbath was to be a day not only of avoiding lawful work that might be done on other days, but it was also to be a day of worship or, as it's put in the Old Testament, holy convocations. There was to be a weekly festival, feast. There would be other special feasts, Passover, and Pentecost and the Feast of Booths, but every week there was to be a holy convocation, a festival to rest in God and to worship Him. You can look, for example, at Leviticus chapter 23, verses 1 and following, where it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them concerning the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Even these are my feasts, And then it talks about the Sabbath. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest and holy convocation. You shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. The prophet Isaiah in his days saw the shortcomings of God's people. And so he exhorted them In Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14, and he said this. He said, if thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, Then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. You see, we can sort of see here that Isaiah is is using the carrot rather than the stick. He's saying, listen, don't you understand? If you will, if you will honor the Lord's ordinance, if you will keep this day, You will be blessed. You will be blessed by it. If you call the Sabbath a delight and not a burden, you will be blessed by it. It's a struggle all the way, though, to the end of the Old Testament. In the book of Nehemiah, the governor, Nehemiah, had been among those who had led back exiles at the time of the Restoration after they'd been in exile in Babylon. And they were, they were establishing, reestablishing Jerusalem. They were building the walls. They rebuilt the temple. And Nehemiah looked and he saw that the people, probably in part because they had been away for 70 years and the temple had been destroyed, had to be rebuilt. And probably a lot of things that God had commanded, they, had, they, they were living in a pagan land. They were influenced by paganism. And when they came back, Nehemiah saw that they weren't keeping the Sabbath. In fact, they were engaging uh, in secular business on the Sabbath. He saw that they were treading their wine presses. They were bringing in their sheaves on the Sabbath. And in Nehemiah 13, 18, he said to them, 
Did not your fathers thus and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? Yet ye bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Very interesting. He says the reason we went into exile was because we didn't keep the Sabbath. And God kept us. He restored us. And now what are we doing? We're falling into the same patterns that led to the fact that we were in exile. And if we continue to profane the Sabbath, then God will chasten us. By the time of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we saw this, didn't we, vividly as we were going through the Gospel of Matthew here recently. The Pharisees had moved in the opposite direction towards legalism, adding extra biblical rules to Sabbath keeping. See, one error is the sin of licentiousness, not not giving any regard to the Sabbath. The other sin is legalism, and that is adding on extra biblical rules, going beyond what is written. And so the Pharisees of Christ's day accused Christ's disciples of breaking the Sabbath when, remember, they gathered grain while they were passing through the grain field and they were opening the husks. And the Pharisees said, uh, you're grinding out grain on the Sabbath day. You're working on the Sabbath day. Or when Christ uh, healed the, the man with the withered hand, they said, you know, it's, it's not, it's, you're doing medical work on the Sabbath day. And here Christ had had healed a man, or he opened the eyes of a blind man in John 9 on the Sabbath day, and they were complaining about that. So this was another type of error uh, with respect to the keeping of the Sabbath. Let's move on now to our seventh and final point. At this point, again, we're going to go a little bit beyond, I think, what is explicitly described here in the text Because we need the whole counsel of God's word, as Paul will say to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. And, of course, from here we know how the, 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 the remainder of this holy history unfolded. And what we learn, looking at Genesis 2, 1 through 3, by from what unfolds in the rest of the scriptures, is that God continues to bless and sanctify a day of Sabbath rest, and this remains for new covenant believers even up to this very day. To put it plainly, we believe that keeping the moral law of God remains a duty that is pressed upon the conscience of each Christian today. Now when we think about the Ten Commandments, There's really not much controversy about nine out of ten. No gods before God. Everyone almost would agree with that. Uh, No idols. Yeah, not taking God's name in vain. Um, Honoring mother and father, not killing. Yes, 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 yes. What's the one point that is controversial in in our day? It's the fourth commandment. What is meant by remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? I want to suggest that it seems that there are two errors, two possible errors when it comes to thinking about what we would call the abiding validity of the fourth commandment. The first error 
would be to say that the fourth commandment has been completely abrogated and removed. We only meet on Sundays because it's convenient. It's the weekend. There's nothing special about Sunday. We could have our worship any day. Um, and the, 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 the idea of one day in seven being set apart as a day of rest and worship, that has been abrogated. Often this comes from confusing this moral law, the fourth commandment, with the ceremonial laws. Now we agree that the ceremonial laws have been abrogated. We no longer keep the dietary laws. We no longer keep the, the Passover. We no longer keep the Pentecost or the Feast of Booths. But the fourth commandment is not a ceremonial law. It's part of the moral law of God. You can see this if you look carefully. One popular study Bible in its note on Exodus 20 verse 8 says the fourth commandment is nullified. It adds that it belongs to the Mosaic economy and is not for the church age. But again, there's no place in the New Testament where the fourth commandment is abrogated. It's not part of the ceremonial law. It's part of the moral law. Second type of error. There are those who see no change in the application of the fourth commandment. So they would say, we need to continue to keep the seventh day Sabbath under the same terms that are described in the Old Testament. This includes those who continue to try to keep the seventh day Sabbath, whether they be seventh day Adventists or seventh day Baptists. Did you know there are seventh day Baptists? They are. They're very small. A good number of them, I think, are in England, but there are some in the, in the U.S., but there are Seventh-day Baptists and there are Seventh-day Adventists. When I was uh, teaching a class a couple years ago over in the, uh, for, for Piedmont, a, a class at the Flavana Women's Correctional Center, there were a couple of really uh, strong Seventh-day Adventist uh, women there. And uh, I had some really interesting discussions with them about what was the proper day of worship. Well, Again, I think that view is an error. Why? Because when we look at the New Testament, it tells us that the fourth commandment is the only one of the Ten Commandments that undergoes a significant, a significant change or adaptation in light of the New Covenant. It's not done away with, but there is a change that is made Sovereignly by God himself. And I think the old Baptists got this exactly right. If you look at chapter 22 of our confession of faith, the second London Baptist confession of faith of 1689, the old Baptists, give me that old time religion. This is what they said in paragraph seven of chapter 22 on the Sabbath. They said, God has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ 
was the last day of the week. And from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day. And is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. The observation of the last day of the week being abolished. You get your Bible and you look in the Gospel of John. You look at John chapter 20. You look at the opening verses. It was on the first day of the week that Christ rose from the dead and appeared to the women at the empty tomb. And then that evening, he appeared to them again. Morning and evening services on the very first resurrection day. And then when you start reading through the Bible, what do you see? In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, Paul goes to a place called Troas. He stays there a whole week. And then Luke tells us on the first day of the week, when the disciples were gathered, Paul stood up to preach. And they also broke bread. The ministry of the word and the ministry of the table on the first day of the week. Then you can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes to the church of Corinth, and he says, you need to take a collection for the poor saints. On the first day of the week, when you gather together, set some funds aside for the poor saints. When does the church meet? On the first day of the week. Why? Because that's the day when Christ was raised from the dead. And so there is still a the moral law. It's simply been transferred by God's own sovereignty from the seventh day to the first day of the week. Also in our Confession of Faith, chapter 22, paragraph 8, it says this. The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs aforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about the worldly employment and recreations, but are also taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Is it okay to prepare food? Yes. Is it okay to care for the sick? Yes. Otherwise, rest in the Lord. Worship. Public and private exercises. The Sabbath was established not to be a burden to mankind, but to be a blessing. The Old Testament Sabbath was established when God rested after the completion of his work of creation on the seventh day. The New Testament Sabbath was established when the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, was gloriously raised from the dead on the first day of the week. It marked the beginning of the new creation. See? The seventh day Sabbath marked the end of the the first creation. The first day Sabbath marks the resurrection of Christ, the new creation. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul wrote, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. See, now 
on the, in the New Covenant Sabbath, what we rest in is the fact that of what God has done for us in Christ. That Christ has gone to the cross and He has been gloriously raised. Our sins have been nailed to the cross and we bear them no more. And now we might walk in newness of life. And so this calls for a day of rest. A day of work. resting not in our own works, but resting in the works of Christ. So friends, would you test the Lord in this? Would you consider laying aside what is lawful to do on other days? And making provision for one day in seven, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. To be a day to rest in what God has done for us in Christ. Give yourself on that day to the public and private exercises of his worship. And see if the Lord will not honor and reward you spiritually. Think of all the troubles we face day to day. Think of the struggles we have as believers. Might one of the tonics for us be that we would have one day in seven that is set apart. For God has blessed and sanctified this day for himself. Amen. We invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we do give thee thanks for thy word and for this inspired revelation, this inspired record of uh, what happened in creation and how that thou didst establish as a creation ordinance one day and seven to be a day of rest. And, oh God, we would confess before thee today that we individually, we as a church, uh, we collectively as the body of Christ, that we have uh, too often overlooked and failed. Uh, Indeed, there's no doubt we will do that again. But we pray that, oh God, we would have a a deep conviction that we would see again uh, having a day, one day in seven set apart for thy service, not as a burden, but as as a deep and profound blessing to us. And so help us, each one individually, each household, each church, including our own, to consider this and consider this as an area in which we might strive for greater faithfulness in light of thy word. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.